Philippians 4, 10 through 18. Um, two things to note about this text before I read it. Uh, this, this text, uh, at least the first part of the verses and then the last part, are, are not atypical from what you would expect from a missionary writing back to a supporting church, recognizing their gifts, recognizing their partnership in the gospel, recognizing what they have done for him. So Paul's going to thank the Philippians uh, and uh, uh, remark about what a great thing it is that they have given uh, to him. And then right in the middle of that is his little discourse about uh, contentment. Um, so, which, which, is, which is interesting for us to think about. Um, there, and primarily, the kind of contentment that he's going to talk about, and this will help you as we read the text in a minute, is contentment with more or less with the provision, particularly financially, that God has made for us. Because Paul is discontent with a lot, and rightly so. He says earlier in Philippians that he is forgetting what's behind and he is pressing on toward the goal. A person that is pressing on toward the goal of his calling in Jesus Christ is a person who is discontent with where they are spiritually, right? Now, now we don't want to fall into some kind of weird legalism about that, but it is a good place for us to recognize that uh, we all, the, the holiest, best saint among us is... Um, their own righteousness is filthy rags, and that we have much to appropriate in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was so encouraged, you know, I, I launched these letters out twice a week, and sometimes I write these letters and I think, oh, this is a good one. I'll get a lot of response. And then I write other ones there where I think, oh, I got to write a letter. I, I need to, and the one I wrote uh, that came out yesterday, I was I'd almost forgotten about it, and mid-morning on Friday, I thought, oh, I need to hurry up and get this, this letter to Ann, and so I sat down at my computer and just pecked it out, uh, and it's amazing the response I got, because we're such a prayerless congregation, but uh, you don't think that's funny, um, <laughs> but the thing that I thought was good about that is, People are discontent with their prayerlessness, and that's a, that's a God-honoring thing, right? That's a good thing to be discontent about. So I pray that God would uh, be our helper uh, in that. So uh, let me pray before we look at uh, Philippians 4, uh, 10 through 18. Jesus, you are so good to us. Uh, you see our hearts. You made us to desire. You made us to want things. And so I pray that you would help us uh, in that. Jesus, you have deep desires for us, deep desires for our fellowship with you, and uh, you uh, long, uh, have deep longings for us as well. I pray that you would teach us much in that, and I pray that you would help us today uh, to uh, find um, uh, contentment uh, not in our circumstances, not in our bank accounts, not in our skills, not in our seeming present security, uh, but that we would find our contentment in the fact that you are ours and uh, we belong to you. 
We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Philippians 4, 10 through 18, this is the word of God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which is probably the most misapplied verse in the history of the Bible. Um, you, especially with athletes, right? Um, I will never dunk a basketball. I don't care how much Jesus strengthens me. <laughs> Not on a ten foot goal, uh, which is great. My grandson, we have a we have a we have a little Tykes goal in our den, and I can dunk on that thing like a madman. But I will never dunk on a. So obviously, he's not talking about what we, you know. I like to think I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That Jesus will let me pick what those things are, and then He'll let me do it. And He hadn't done that yet. Back to the Word of God. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Scott, go ahead and put my notes up there. So this is one of the things we know about Philippians. One of the things that we've noted about it as we've looked at it over the the weeks and months is that Paul talks about rejoicing a lot. Well, he begins this text by saying that he rejoices greatly, right? He is delighting greatly in the fact that the Philippians have given him a gift, Right? And so uh, it seems like that uh, they have been faithful to him in the past. There was a period of time there where they were, for whatever reason, they weren't able to give him a gift. And now here again, they've given him another gift, right? So they're, and, and he says that their generosity, their gifting towards him has been renewed. And so it's really interesting to note, as this, this letter would have been written and read to the church, that there's something that should leap out at you at the very beginning of this, and that's this. Paul does not thank the Philippians directly. Okay? He doesn't thank them directly. Which seems, uh, and many commentators say that this, this passage is rude. Because he says to them that he, does, he doesn't thank them directly. And he even says that really, you know, his joy in the gift is because it's actually helped them more than it's helped him. And in fact, even if they hadn't given him the gift, he'd be okay. Right? So think about that for a little bit. If you're Philippians, you're poor, you don't have much, and you make a gift. And Paul says to you, hey, you know, thanks for the gift, but really, I would have been fine without it. I'm glad you gave it to me, but I'm fine with that, right? It's a pretty, pretty interesting thing, but that's, that's not what he's getting at. Paul, Paul is being very careful and very clear here in the way he wants to teach us and teach the church at Philippi about what it means to be content and about what it means to receive and to give. 
right? So often we give and we receive in our culture in a way that is not very helpful. Uh, early on in the life of the church, I'll never forget one of our uh, early elders came to me, and he was just so discouraged and, and so upset. He's like, you know, you're always talking to us about having people over and, and practicing hospitality, and he named off a bunch of people that he and his wife had entertained in their house for dinner, and not a single one of them had asked them over in response. Isn't that awesome? I love our honesty. <laughs> I just thought it was great. Um, because it gave us an opportunity to think a little bit about the nature of gifts and the nature of, of, of Thanksgiving. Because sometimes what happens to us is, you know, I, uh, we, we laugh in our family because we are notoriously ungrateful people and we are notoriously bad at writing thank you notes. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we have this situation where, you know, with our kids, we would like, you know, it was so, it almost made me wish that nobody ever gave them anything because the work to get them to write a thank you note was so hard and so challenging. I'm like, oh, gee, don't give us anything because this is going to kill us to get them to write a thank you note, right? It's going to wreck our relationship. So... To come at this in a, in a, in a different way is to, to think about when, when someone gives us a gift, particularly a gift as Paul receives here, give without strings attached. That's one thing. But the other thing is, is to thank without strings attached. Because sometimes what we do in our response to people and in their gifts to us is that we try to manipulate them, either into feeling like they should have given us more or that we want them to give again. Or sometimes we flatter people, we make more over the gift than we should, and then other times, next slide please, Scott, when, uh, other times we actually don't say anything in Thanksgiving when someone has done something for us because we don't want to manipulate and we don't want to flatter. Here's the thing. I think what Paul does in this text is a great example for us. And I don't, I don't usually like calling out just examples from the Bible and telling people to do this, but I think this is a good thing. What Paul does here is he thanks God for the gift in the presence of the people that God used to give him the gift. Okay? And that, that's a great thing for us because if, if, if the Spirit of God is alive in us at all, what's that going to do to us? When I hear, when someone comes to me and says, hey, God used you in this way, or I saw Jesus Christ in your generosity in this, or I am grateful to God for what he's done for you, that is a great thing, right? That is, that, that if, if anybody who has the Spirit of God in them is going to hear that and be moved and be encouraged, right? Because it tells them that, that God is using them, that God's at work in them, and it doesn't, in the end, throw us back upon ourselves to, to tempt us to pride or, or to tempt us in other ways. We can, we can join in fellowship together by saying, Yes, you're right. God is at work here in the giving and the receiving, that he used me, he used this gift in, a, in, in, in this way to get himself glory and to move, uh, to provide uh, uh, the, the, for the people that he loves. So I think that's a great thing for us. I think that would be a great discipline for us as a church to practice would be the ability to say to one another, not just to thank you for doing this, that's good, 
But I thank God that he used you, that he gave this through you. That, to me, I think that would, in the end, would, would, would set us free to be encouraging and to be, um, uh, uh, well, that God would just get a lot of glory in the way in which we, we handle that. So if someone has blessed you, thank God for them in front of them. That would be a good thing to carry away from this. I think that would be something that would be wonderful for, you know, somebody to say, what you did for me was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What a rich thing for somebody to say to you, right? That would be, that would be, a, really, that would be a really great and helpful thing. But the big thing we need to talk about today is contentment. And particularly contentment with our circumstance in life. Because the, the, the fact of the matter is contentment is one of these things that's kind of slippery, right? It is, it is kind of hard for us to get our hearts and our minds around because we're seldom content. Um, you know, when, when I think of contentment, bear with me in this, uh, when I think of contentment, I think most often of, um, of a beer commercial, right? When you see some guy sitting on a beach, not too hot, you know, these, these guys on the beach drinking beer, they never sweat. Their beach is somehow sunny but cool. Not very, not very, you know, and they're very good looking. They don't drink much beer because they couldn't look like this if they did. And they're just relaxed, got their cerveza right there, just hanging out, barely got a pulse, life is good right? That looks like contentment to me. Well, that's, that commercial is working, right? Because that's communicating to you what contentment is. And that if you want to get content, get out of your house, get away from your job, get away from your wife and kids, and go sit under a palm tree with an alcoholic beverage of your choice, right? That's, that's what we think Contentment is, and it looks pretty good, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. The problem with that becomes when that, when that becomes necessary for us to be content, right? Because what, what, when, when we seek a change in circumstance or a change like that, that suddenly we think would make us, give us this God-honoring contentment, give us this place of rest, Give us this place where coveting is removed from us, right? Where, where we, we don't desire anybody else's stuff or relationships or money or anything like that, where we're just happy with what we have. We think the way to get that is to change some circumstance in our life, to move, to get a new job, get a new spouse, new house. It's funny how that works. And it's funny how Paul addresses this to, uh, to this, uh, this church because our tendency is to think that we find contentment through ourselves, that it's something that resides within us and that with our own self-sufficiency and our own abilities, somehow or other in this world in which we live, we'll find contentment with what we have, who we're with, how we're loved, who we love. And Paul says that's, that's, that's all wrong, that, that his, his contentment comes from outside of him. It comes from Jesus, right? Not from his circumstances. 
Because whether he's rich or poor, hungry or full, his internal workings are the same. So, next slide. Now, the, the, the thing that's, that's interesting about this is, is that, that he says here something that I think you, that you, have to be, you have to pay attention to, right? He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need, right? You have to go to school to learn to be content. It is something you have to learn. It is not something that you just slip into. It's not something that you just fall into. He says that he has to learn how to do this, and that as he's learned how to do that, it is something now that he knows how to do. And what's interesting about that is if you know anything about Paul, what's Paul's besetting sin? Do you, do you know what it is? Do you know what he said? He, he didn't even think he was a sinner until he experienced this sin. You know what it was? The sin of coveting. Right? He looks at the Ten Commandments, and he's better than any of us. He looks at the Ten Commandments, he's like, I got them all, I got them all, I got, yeah, 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 coveting. He looks in his heart, and he knows, I covet that, I want that. I want what somebody else has. You notice Kevin prayed, and the text that we read earlier in the service is that we often want what wicked people have. Well, listen, I want what wicked people have, but I want what Christians have too. Listen, I'm a, I'm a uh, you know, I don't, I don't discriminate in my coveting. I covet what, I covet what good people and bad people have. I'm, I am an all-purpose coveter, right? And, I, you know, it's, it's funny how this works because I think, I think you know, what, what happens to me often is that I live my life and I think about the way I am in terms of what I don't have instead of what I have. Years ago, I had met with someone, and it was a very intense kind of counseling situation at a, at a you know, a, one of these frou-frou bagel shops, you know, that people like to hang out with too late in the morning, you know. Anytime you're in a bagel shop at 9 or 10 o'clock, I think you're with the wrong people in there, you know, because I, I know this is a blue-collar thing. I'm like, why, isn't, why aren't these people at work? That's what I think, right? So... So you're in there in the bagel shop and everybody's yucking it up. Well, I had this meeting and I look across the, the room and there are this group of women, all of whom I knew, all in their cute tennis outfits, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, yucking it up, having a great time. I hated them. I hated them. And the reason why I hated them was because I was thinking, look at that. My wife is cuter than any of them in a tennis outfit. I'd like to see my wife in a tennis outfit more often, but I can't because she has to work so that we can send our kids to school. That's terrible. I hate those people. I can't believe they're in here, you know, offending me this way, right? This is just, it just just really got all over me, and so I had to leave. So by the time I get to my car, I'm like, oh, I'm so convicted. I'm such a loser. I can't, can't you know, Jesus, help me. I, 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 am, I am, it's, you know, I don't, I don't, is that what, is that what I want? I, I, I love our life. I love what we have, but at that moment, that looked so much better than what Jesus had given me. 
And so the, 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 the circumstances, the world in which we live, it, it really does not matter, and that's what Paul's getting at here, that, that whether you're rich or you're poor, it doesn't matter. That, that will not dictate to you your, your contentment, right? Because what he says here is, is that you, you need to learn contentment whether you're in the school of abundance or whether you're in the school of poverty. Either way, contentment is something that will be far away from each one of us. Uh, I know plenty of poor people who are discontent. Sometimes we idolize the poor. Sometimes we look at them and we think, wow, you know, to be poor would be good. That way you wouldn't be so discontent. Poor people are discontent. Or we look at rich people and we think, if I was rich like that guy, I would be content. I'd be happy. But plenty of rich people are discontent too. So the, so the point is, it's not, and by the way, by any global measurement, the vast majority of us in this room are rich. And, and, and historically speaking, if you compare yourself to uh, the mass of humanity that has lived on this planet for the last several thousand years, you're really rich. Really rich. Really, really, really rich, right? And, and, and even, even the poor among us, the poverty that we experience now probably doesn't compare to the poverty that was experienced uh, in, in the first century. I was talking with, with uh, Pastor Stan Morton this week, and we were talking about this issue about poverty. And, and his thing is, he thinks that, uh, that it, by the New Testament definition, there really aren't any poor people in America. Not really not in the way in which the New Testament speaks about it. Now, certainly, the way we, we look at that, there are certainly poor people that, that, that need our help. But the fact of the matter is, to wish to be poor or to wish to be rich is not the, where you're going to learn contentment. You're going to learn contentment independent of your circumstances. You're going to learn contentment by seeing and taking Jesus at his word for what it is he has done for you, by resting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because in that you have everything you will ever need. And so rather than focusing our attention in this search for contentment in the change of circumstances or the change in resources, that's the place that is the thing, independent of any of those things, that will give us the peace and the rest that our, whole, that our souls seek. It's so hard for us, though, isn't it? We're always comparing. We're always looking around. And, and we're always approaching our life, not from the standpoint of what do I have, but from what I don't have. It's interesting uh, when we, when we think about poverty alleviation, uh, those people who are most successful in moving into a particular area or community and helping to alleviate poverty don't approach poor areas by thinking, what do these people need? They're most successful when they go and they look at a community and say, what do they already have? And how can we capitalize on the gifts that are there?
the Christian learns contentment by recognizing the, what, what, what it is that we already have in Jesus recognizing the fact that he has supplied everything that we need and that, that there is no place we can go or no circumstance that we could experience where he will not be there with us and for us. When we were struggling with infertility, uh, and even after we lost a child, it was one of those things that would, uh, I was at a loss. I, I didn't know how to think about that. I didn't know how to love my wife. I didn't know how to love all our friends and our peers who were having babies like crazy. And it was a, it was just a dark, bleak time. Really hard. Because this is a good thing. The scriptures tell us it's a blessing. And it was something we wanted. And it seemed like it was something that God had said no to us. And so I, I am at a loss. I'm in the pit. I'm in the darkness. I feel cut off from God. I feel cut off from other people. I don't know how to think about this because I am so discontent and so broken by having this desire for something that I am powerless to achieve. And so it's one thing to be discontent and see a pathway through, but I was discontent and there wasn't anything we could do to, do, to, to, to change that. So I was a miserable wreck. Um, just, just in a terrible place. So, and like in most cases, you know, when I talk with my wife about that, I'm like, how, how, how are we going to get through this? How am I going to get through this? How are we going to do this? And she says, well, I have chosen to focus upon what God has given me, not what he's not given me. And I'm like, well, what has he given you? And she said, you. I'm like, you are in tr so much trouble. <laughs> if, if that is the best thing you got going for you, whoo, man, you know, this is, uh, this is bad, right? Looks like God could do a little better. <laughs> but, the, but, but the fact of the matter is, that's what Paul is doing as he's, chained between two guards, looking at martyrdom. He would love to be free. He would love to be out preaching the gospel. But whether he is or he's not, the gospel's true. The Spirit of God is alive in him. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose again. And Jesus is really in fellowship with him. And so, so the, the, the school of contentment, the, the, the place where God takes us in this is, is a place that sets us free from the being dictated to by our circumstances. So there are two texts that I think would be helpful for us to remember uh, today as we go from here, and that is this text from Proverbs. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. We don't, pay, we, don't, we don't pray that very often, right? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's a beautiful prayer. And then, and then Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll give you whatever you need. Right? 
Isn't that what we want that verse to say? I'll give you what you want. No, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So somehow or other, in the mind of God and in the heart of God, the pathway to be free from the love of money and to be content with what we have is to believe the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Lord, you will never leave us nor forsake us. And yet our attention is so drawn to what others have and to what we don't have. So much so that we envy and we condemn and we judge and we covet. Forgive us. But also I pray today, Lord, that you would plant in our hearts and minds such a compelling vision of what you have given us in Jesus Christ. The riches of glory, the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, the fellowship that we have with other believers, the joy we have of sins forgiven, and the life everlasting that is secure to us, come what may. Help us to rest in that. Lord, you know that we are so tempted, so drawn, so easily swept up uh, in circumstances and temporary uh, fads and desires. And so I pray that the eternal gospel, the eternal goodness that is ours in Jesus Christ would captivate our hearts. Would you do that for us? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's confess our sins by using this uh, confession of sin uh, from uh, St. Augustine. Almighty God, you know our needs before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Set your servants free from all anxious thoughts about the future. Give us contentment with your good gifts and confirm our faith that as we seek your kingdom, you will not let us lack any good thing. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Believers, hear these words of encouragement. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich.